Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. This is God's word. You may be seated. Have you all ever heard of the term Christianese before? Christianese. Have you all ever heard of that? Okay. If you haven't, what do I mean by that? Well, if you grew up in the church a lot, or if you were there young, or it's easy for Christians who've been in the system, if you will, a while, to just speak words that the outside world doesn't really know what they're talking about. Does anybody know, kind of feel what I'm talking about here, just when I say that? How many times you walk into a church, they spout off a bunch of these big words, not necessarily complex, but just stuff you're not super familiar with in your daily vocabulary, one of them being sanctification. Okay, how many times do you hear that outside of the four walls of the church? Very rarely, if ever. Today, one Christianese word that we throw around a lot is the word salvation. It's a very basic name. It's not even overtly religious, even, because salvation can be used in a very secular sense. I need Salvation, I need to be saved, I need help. That's the most basic meaning of the word. So when we open up God's word and we just simply ask the question, what is salvation, how would you answer that? How would you answer that, biblically speaking? I like what one scholar noted. He said, in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament, God's salvation includes, here's three R's for you, rescue, renewal, and restoration. And it's accomplished through the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. And those three R's are helpful to understand what salvation is. Here's an earthly example for you to wrap your head around it. Imagine there was a healthy guy. Let's say he um, had a wife, he had a couple kids, he had a good job, he had a healthy physical body. body. This man is sitting around the table, the, the supper table, eating a meal with his wife and kids. And during the meal, this man is sitting And his wife somehow found out that this man cheated on her with a co-worker three years ago. The wife brings it to the surface, points it out, calls it out to the man. What does the man do in response to that, this scenario? This man dashes from the table. He drives to Yosemite National Park, trying to run away from his shame and his consequences of his sin. Similar to what Jonah did, if you remember in the book of Jonah. God gave him a righteous calling. What did Jonah do? He ran away. Tried to get, a, get away from everybody. So after a few days, though, this man is in the park. He's isolated. He slips on the trail as he's walking. He stumbles down the side of a mountain and hits his head on a rock. The man is bleeding out. But thankfully, he's got one bar of service and he's able to call for help. He's able to call for salvation. Again, the most basic meaning of the word. When you think of salvation with this man's context, it could arguably said there are three realms by which this man must be saved. Firstly, again, using those three R's, the man must be rescued. What What do you mean? He needs to be transported from that dangerous location, that isolated place in the wilderness, transported and just simply rescued. That's the first level of salvation. So, The helicopter comes in, it rescues him, and it airlifts him to the closest hospital. The man is rescued. Secondly, the man needs renewal. It's it's one thing to just be delivered from a dangerous circumstance. This man had physical ailments. He was bleeding out. So this man needed physical renewal. He needed to be healed. And that's where 
the work of the doctors come in, where he is treated and he has physical therapy so that he can walk and, and talk again. The doctors save his life, physically speaking. But thirdly, and perhaps more fundamentally, the man needs restoration. He's rescued from his dangerous scenario. He has that healthy body again. What's that thing he really needs? That restoration at home with his wife and his kids. I'm not talking, I'm not addressing the issue of does he deserve to be welcomed back at this very moment, but that's nonetheless what, what I'm inferring, right? It, salvation is multifaceted. There's multiple dimensions to it. So in this analogy, if you've heard or read the Bible often, the Bible likens you and I to a wayward spouse and to God Almighty as the faithful, loving husband. So in that analogy, we are the wayward spouse. The triune God is the rescuer. He is the pilot of the, of the helicopter. He is the medic. He is the physical therapist. He is the counselor. He is the loving spouse who welcomes us back home. He absorbs the shame, absorbs the pain that we deserve for our waywardness. That's what salvation is all about. What is salvation? God saving us. God saving us. It's as simple as that. So this morning, my goal, our goal, and this is what I want to encourage you with. Receive the gift of salvation and rejoice in it. Receive the gift of salvation and rejoice in it. Right? Don't just receive it and then have an ungrateful heart. Right? Receive this beautiful gift and then be happy about it. Right? Be joyful about it. Rejoice in it. If you and I are going to grasp what salvation is biblically, Four truths we'll consider. Number one, the problem. Number two, the solution. Number three, the reception. And fourthly and finally, the implementation of it. Number one, the problem. If somebody comes to you and says, I need help, what do you say? What do you need help with? This is the most basic kind of response. What do you need help with? A kid says, that, hey, I need help. What do you need help with? And it's the same according to God's word. Acts 4.12, we just read it. Salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. The Bible is very clear. You and I need to be saved. But what do we need to be saved from? What do we need to be helped with? What is the problem, the danger that we face? It's basic common sense. Before you talk about and receive the cure of chemotherapy, you first have to come to grips with the diagnosis of cancer. Basic common sense. So before we talk about the good news of salvation, what's the bad news of the Bible? Well, you have to go back to the Garden of Eden. Turn to Genesis 3 if you have a Bible, if you'd like to see with your own eyes. Genesis chapters 1 to 11, and really the whole book of Genesis contains the beginnings or the foundation of humanity. About the church, about the Jewish people, of course, but about all of humanity. Where did we come from? How did we, how did we get started? Genesis chapter 3 famously records what's known as the fall. And in Genesis 3, many of you, even if you didn't grow up in the church, you, you're familiar with that image of Adam and Eve eating the fruit of the forbidden tree. Typically, I think it's depicted as an apple, Although if you read the text, it doesn't specify what the fruit is, so we don't really know. But there, if, just to recall the story just very briefly, God created paradise. Everything was very good at the very beginning. But then, 
he created Adam and Eve. Still very good. Adam and Eve, why did he create them? Well, to have fellowship with God, to have fellowship with one another, and also to cultivate the earth, to rule over creation. Not to uh, domineer over it and be a tyrant over it, but to cultivate it. You know, make gardens, make beautiful buildings and whatnot. Cultivate the earth. God gave one restriction, one prohibition. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. One command. And what did Satan do? Satan came into the garden, slithered in as a serpent, tempted them by using the infamous question, did God really say? And Satan twisted God's words because if you look at the text, God explicitly said, don't eat of the fruit of the tree. What did Satan say? God told you don't touch it. You see, Satan twisted the words. God never said don't touch it. He said don't eat it. But that's what Satan always does. He takes the pure word of God and twists it and perverts it. So Adam and Eve, they, they fell into temptation. They both ate of the forbidden fruit. And you have to really wonder, what was the problem with that? I will say, I'll admit, the problem really was not about the fruit. I don't know if anybody's ever told you that before. The central problem is not them eating fruit per se. The problem with Adam and Eve there is that they did not listen to God. That's the fundamental core issue. They did not listen to God. And below that, in essence, by eating the fruit, what they were saying to God was, I don't trust you. I don't believe in you. You know, you're a killjoy. You don't really want me to have true joy or true wisdom, true knowledge. You're a killjoy. I know what's best for my life. I'm going to take matters into my own hands. Thank you very much. You've said enough. I'll take it from here. That's the essence of sin. It's saying to God, I know better than you. I want to follow my own ways, not what you say in your word. What's so bad about that? Well, when you slander the king, when you turn your back on him, there's only one end result. Proverbs 14, verse 12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. And friends, this morning, that same hostile attitude that resided in Adam and Eve has been passed on to every single one of us, to you and I today. We all have that sin nature, that desire in us that refuses and that resists to submit to God's word because we think we know what's best. We think we can take life into our own hands, into our own matters. But Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death. In other words, the payment of sin is death. The end result of sin is death. Sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. And what's the problem with that? Hebrews 9.27. It's appointed once for man to die, and then after he dies, he will face judgment. Every single one of us is going to die, and every single one of us is going to stand before the throne room of God, and he is the, he is the righteous judge. Psalm 7.11. Right, 7.11 uh, for those of you who are under it, that's my birthday, so that's a good, easy one to remember. Free Slurpee Day. But Psalm 7, verse 11, it's a very good verse, especially in this matter. God is a righteous judge, God who displays his wrath every day. In this world, nobody likes talking about God as a judge. Right? God is a father, God is love, God is, he, he's okay, he, he's just, you know, he's, he's got my back, and he's, is that true? Yes, all right. But nobody rarely mentions God is judge. 
a good, righteous, perfect judge nonetheless. When you stand before him, the simple question for you is, how will you fare? How will you fare? What will you say to the judge on judgment day? Well, if you want a simple litmus test, one thing I encourage you to do is simply begin by looking at the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments. A few of them. Number nine. What's the ninth commandment? Anybody know off the top of their head? Test your Bible trivia. Ninth commandment. It's okay if you don't know. I'll give it to you. Do not bear false witness against your neighbor. Or popularly stated, do not lie. Right? How many of you have told lies before in your life? The eighth commandment. Do not steal. How many of you have stolen anything before? Whether it not be a TV from a store, right? Steal time from your employer, so on and so forth. The third commandment, do not take God's name in vain. How many of you have done that? You stub your toe, you telling a joke, OMG, right? How often do you say that? You, you use the name that is exalted above all things. You bring it down to a level of filth or for humor. How many of you would do that with your own mother's name? Nobody would, okay? But we do that often with God's holy name. You might be saying, all right, Jimmy D, all right, yeah, I, I lied. I've stolen a couple things here and there, but I've never done anything really bad. I've never murdered anyone. That's the worst thing anybody could ever do. Well, what did God's word say? 1 John 3.15. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. You know that no murderer has eternal life residing in them. How many of you have ever hated someone before? Have you ever committed adultery? Well, have you ever lusted after someone? Jesus not only looks at what you do, he not only looks at what you say, God judges your heart. He sees everything. You can't hide from him. Why do I say all that? At this point, you might immediately retort, all right, Jimmy D, everybody's guilty then. Everybody has broken the commandments at one point or another. That is absolutely true. But what's the predicament for you and I? The wages of sin is death. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-10 lists a bunch of different sins, greed, pride, sexual immorality, all kinds of things. And then it says, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, what are some popular excuses? Popular excuses. You know, I'm a good person. I'm a good person. I've made mistakes. Nobody's perfect. But deep down, I'm a good person. Try that in a court of law here on earth. You stand before a judge. Let's just say you've robbed a bank. You know what, judge? I know I stole a million dollars, but I'm a good person. I made a mistake. You can let me go, right? What's the judge going to say? Yeah, yeah, right. You're going to jail. You might also say, all right, God is loving. God is forgiving. So therefore, I stand before him. He's going to have to forgive me, right? That's who he is. God is love. Try that in a court of law with the human judge again. If the judge is a loving guy, he loves his family, loves his wife, loves his kids, loves his community, serves in the, the you know, soup kitchen, all that kind of stuff, he's a very loving guy. If you stand before the judge, you're guilty. You say, hey, judge, I know you're a good guy. I know you're a loving guy. You can just let me go, right? What's the judge going to say? I am loving. I am good but I can't let you go. If I do that, I betray my own goodness. How much more so with God, right? You can't just trick him and just use these kind of excuses. What's the problem? What's the problem that you and I face, right? The problem of sin. 
the problem of death, the problem of hell. That's the problem we face. But the Bible doesn't end there. The Bible is is a perfect, beautiful book. It gives us the problem, but it also gives us the beautiful solution. In this Christmas hymn, you're probably familiar with this lyric, he came to make his blessings known far as the curse is found. Everywhere where there's an inch of this curse, of this sin, of this darkness, Christ came to bring blessing, to bring light, to bring joy. So the Bible gives us bad news, but it also gives us the good news, and that's number two, the solution. What's the solution? You've heard this one from Pastor Linus Van Pelt. Luke chapter 2, verse 8 to 11. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, listen to these words here, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Friends, Christmas is all about the Savior coming into the world to save us. It's as simple as that. What is Christmas all about? The Savior coming into the world to save us. An easy way to think of it or to phrase it, Jesus is in heaven. He left the glories of heaven to come to earth so that you and I can later leave earth and enter the glories of heaven. It's this beautiful trade that happens, this um, beautiful, glorious trade that Christ did on our behalf. Now, you might be acknowledging, all right, Christmas is about salvation. It's about the Savior entering into the world. I got that. I get Jesus as the Savior. I see he came to bring us salvation, but how does he actually save us from sin, from death, from hell? Three words, or four words for you. By taking our place. By taking our place. That's the gospel message. Christ takes our place. Jesus left the splendor of heaven so he could be clothed with those dirty rags in a feeding trough. If you didn't know a manger, a manger is a feeding trough where filthy animals slobber and spit and probably regurgitate food and it's still there. Jesus was laid, laying in a manger, a filthy place for the king of heaven. But that's emblematic of what happened at a deeper level and what happened on the cross. Right? Jesus, an easy way to understand it is like this. Jesus lived the perfect life that you and I failed to live. He died the death that we should die. And he rose from the dead so that we could have his life, so that we could have his joy. Listen to 1 Peter 2.24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us, God, the Father, made Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Then Romans 4.25, he, referring to Jesus, Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. That's the gospel message. Christ lived the life we should have lived, died the death we should have lived, and rose to life so that we can have his life. You might say, I got that. Jesus came to give us salvation. How do I receive that? What do I do today? Mark 1.15. This is arguably Jesus' first words that he spoke in his public ministry. Okay, so if you didn't know, Jesus 
had about 30-ish years of his life in relative, um, he was very anonymous, very behind the scenes, didn't make a, a flashy name for himself. But then around year 30, that's when he began his public ministry, teaching, preaching, traveling around uh, Judea, that region. Mark 1.15, what does it say? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Two things. Repent, believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. What is repentance? It's another Christian word you can throw around a lot. You don't really hear it in the secular world. What does repentance mean? It means to turn. It basically means to do a 180. The the Greek text, it simply means to have a change of mind. But you know, if you have a true change of mind in life, you're going to change your life. So you have a change of mind, and that's a repositioning of your body, of your your whole heart, right? If God is over here, Satan is over here, self, the world, um, pursuing money, pursuing power, your career, all the things that we typically idolize, if that's what you're focusing on, repentance is simply turning around, saying, God, you're first. God, I want to follow you. God, I want to honor you. I want to honor you. That's what repentance is, realigning your life to serve God. But it's not just about that. You see, some people try to do repentance in their own strength. How many of you are familiar with the phrase, turn over a new leaf? Right? We throw that around during uh, New Year's, which is right around the corner. I just, I need to clean up. I, I need to stop doing these bad habits. I need to, I need to be better, do better. Right? There's wisdom. You can, there's, there's benefit in doing that, okay? My point is, a lot of people try to clean up their own lives by themselves. Right? It's, yeah, I, I, I realize that drugs and alcohol, it's, it's really not filling the void in my heart, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and do better. But you don't turn to God. You turn to some other thing of the world. Repentance is turning to the Lord God Almighty. The other side of that that you need to have is belief. It's trust, faith. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 to 13. This is a wonderful passage for you to store up in your heart. Romans 10, 9 tells us, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's with your heart that you believe and are justified. It's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. The scripture says, anyone who believes in him, referring to Christ, will never be put to shame. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all, richly blesses all who call on him. Then verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the promise of the gospel. You acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. He's not just a good guy. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just a good example for you. No, he's Lord. He's king over the universe. And then you must believe in the resurrection, as Romans 10 talked about. Believe that he has been raised from the dead. And that's a a beautiful uh, truth of what that means. Easter time, we celebrate that. And then you you must call upon him. You must call for help. It's as simple as saying, Lord, save me. Lord, help me. I need you. Some of the most beautiful words you can ever utter, I need you, talking to God Almighty. And if you do that, God will save you. He will give you a new heart, a new spirit, a new mind. Not a perfect one, not yet, but he will give you a new heart nonetheless. It leads us to the fourth one. Fourth point, the implementation, right? We've we've got the problem. 
We've got the solution. It's Christ. How do we receive it? The reception of it? Well, it's repentance and faith. The implementation. Last one. I get that I'm a sinner. I get Jesus is the Savior. He came to save us from sin, from death, from the curse of the fall. I understand. I see it in God's Word. I, I need to believe. I need to repent. I need to follow Christ. What does that mean for me today? In today's daily living, what does that mean? Think of it like this. There's three components to it. Past, present, future. Salvation has three components. Past, present, and future. Think of it like this. Jesus saves us from the penalty of sin. That's number one. Jesus saves you from the penalty of sin. So if you're ever talking to anybody, and let's say they became a Christian 5, 10, 20 years ago, usually they might use the verbiage, hey, I was saved 20 years ago. What do you mean by that? Do you mean you're perfect now? Do you mean, this is a dumb question, but do you mean that you're actually in heaven now? No, you're still on earth. You've still got faults. So what do you mean that I was saved five years ago? Well, that simply means Jesus saves you from the penalty of sin. From the penalty of sin. The second point is Jesus saves us from the power of sin. That's the present day. This is what's known as sanctification. That's, a, that's a, simply a word that means God cleans you up. God's setting you apart from the things of the world. He's cleaning you up. He's refining, renewing your heart little by little. So God is saving you from the power of sin. And then lastly, glorification. Our hope is not in this world. We don't just try harder in this world. Our hope as Christians is at the end. When Jesus comes back, when we will experience what's known as glorification. Our broken bodies will be fully healed. Our broken spirits will be fully healed. And that's when Jesus will save us from the presence of sin. Every ounce, every shred, every taint of sin will be gone when Jesus comes again during the second advent, the second coming. So friends, in conclusion, we're broken. I hope you don't dispute that, okay? The world acknowledges we're broken. Everybody sees the carnage, the chaos going on in the world. You feel it in your own body, your own heart. God's word simply tells us what the true problem is. Everybody can try to figure out what's wrong, what's the the core problem in this world. God's word is quite clear. It's the issue of the heart. It's the issue of you and I's hearts. Our hearts are broken. We need to be restored. We're hurting. We must be healed. We're sinful. We must be saved. We are filthy, so we must be cleansed. And the gospel message, the salvation message of the Bible is that salvation has come through the Savior. And who is the Savior? Christ the Lord. As we just read about in Luke 2 when he, when he was laying in the manger. So if you're a Christian today, rejoice in that news. It's a simple reminder for you, the basics of salvation. If you're not a Christian, if you're exploring Christianity, I encourage you to think about these things and know that I'm always open and available to talk about them with you afterwards or life in general. That's the message of salvation. I hope you've walk, you can walk away with just a little bit more clarity and a little bit more delight in what God has done for us in Christ this Christmas season. In conclusion, the last thing I like to do, we, we're preaching through, I'm preaching through the Baptist faith and message. And what is that? It's what do we believe as a church? Or what should we believe? 
What are some basic things that we ought to confess, that we ought to declare in this world of confusion? What's the truth that we hold on to? So if you'd like and if you, you can see, um, if you're comfortable with it, please read with, with me out loud uh, the different things if, of what we confess or what we ought to confess as a church regarding the doctrine of salvation. So read with me. Salvation involves the redemption of the whole man and is offered freely to all who accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, who by his own blood obtained eternal redemption for the believer. In its broadest sense, salvation includes regeneration, justification, sanctification, and glorification. There is no salvation apart from personal faith in Jesus Christ as Lord. Regeneration, or the new birth, is a work of God's grace whereby believers become new creatures in Christ Jesus. It is a change of heart wrought by the Holy Spirit through conviction of sin to which the sinner responds in repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance and faith are inseparable experiences of grace. Repentance is a genuine turning from sin toward God. Faith is the acceptance of Jesus Christ and commitment of the entire personality to Him as Lord and Savior. Justification is God's gracious and full acquittal upon principles of His righteousness of all sinners who repent and believe in Christ. Justification brings the believer unto a relationship of peace and favor with God. Sanctification is the experience beginning in regeneration by which the believer is set apart to God's purposes and is enabled to progress toward moral and spiritual maturity through the presence and power of the Holy Spirit dwelling in him. Growth in grace should continue throughout the regenerate person's life. Glorification is the culmination of salvation and is the final blessed and abiding state of the redeemed. That's the end. Will you pray with me from Psalm 28, then we'll close with the doxology. The Lord is the strength of His people, a fortress of salvation for His anointed one. Save your people and bless your inheritance. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.